0: Section twenty four of Celebrated Crimes, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Celebrated Crimes, Volume One by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section twenty four. The Borges*, Chapter thirteen, Part Two at the same time while orsino was carrying to the confederates the treaty drawn up between him and the duke bentivoglio not willing to submit to the arbitration indicated made an offer to caesar of settling their differences by a private treaty and sent his son to arrange the conditions after some parleying they were settled as follows bentivoglio should separate his fortunes from vitelli and orsini he should furnish the duke of valentinois with a hundred men-at-arms and a hundred mounted archers for eight years He should pay twelve thousand ducats per annum to caesar for the support of a hundred lances in return for this his son hannibal was to marry the sister of the archbishop of enna who was caesar's niece and the pope was to recognize his sovereignty in bologna the king of france the duke of ferrara and the republic of florence were to be the guarantors of this treaty but the convention brought to the confederates by Orsino was the cause of great difficulties on their part. Vitellozzo Vitelli in particular, who knew Caesar the best, never ceased to tell the other condottieri that so prompt and easy a peace must needs be the cover to some trap. But since Caesar had meanwhile collected a considerable army at Imala, and the four hundred lances lent him by Louis Twelfth had arrived at last, Vitellozzo and Oliverotto decided to sign the treaty that Orsino brought. "'and to let the Duke of Orbino and the Lord of Camerino know of it. "'They, seeing plainly that it was henceforth impossible "'to make a defence unaided, had retired, "'the one to Città di Castello, "'and the other into the kingdom of Naples. "'But Caesar, saying nothing of his intentions, "'started on the 10th of December, "'and made his way to Cassena "'with a powerful army once more under his command. "'Fear began to spread on all sides,' not only in Romagna, but in the whole of northern Italy. Florence, seeing him move away from her, only thought it a blind to conceal his intentions, while Venice, seeing him approach her frontiers, dispatched all her troops to the banks of the Po. Caesar perceived their fear, and lest harm should be done to himself by the mistrust it might inspire, he sent away all French troops in his service as soon as he reached Cassena, except a hundred men with Monsieur de Candali, his brother-in-law. It was then seen that he only had two thousand cavalry and two thousand infantry with him. Several days were spent in parleying, for at Cassena Caesar found the envoys of the Vitelli and Orsini, who themselves were with their army in the duchy of Urbino. But after the preliminary discussions as to the right course to follow in carrying on the plan of conquest, there arose such difficulties between the general-in-chief and these agents, that they could not but see the impossibility of getting anything settled by intermediaries, and the urgent necessity of a conference between Caesar and one of the chiefs. So Oliverotto ran the risk of joining the duke in order to make proposals to him, either to march on Tuscany or to take Senegalia, which was the only place in the duchy of Urbino that had not yet fallen into Caesar's power. Caesar's reply was that he did not desire to war upon Tuscany, because the Tuscans were his friends but that he approved of the lieutenant's plans with regard to Senigallia, and therefore was marching towards Farno. But the daughter of Frederick, the former Duke of Urbino, who held the town of Senigallia, and who was called the Lady Prefect because she had married Gian della Rovere, whom his uncle, Sixtus IV, had made Prefect of Rome, judging that it would be impossible to defend herself against the forces the Duke of Valentinois was bringing, left the citadel in the hands of a captain, "'recommending him to get the best terms he could for the town, "'and took boat for Venice. "'Caesar learned this news at Rimini "'through a messenger from Vitelli and the Orsini, "'who said that the governor of the citadel, "'though refusing to yield to them, "'was quite ready to make terms with him, "'and consequently they would engage to go to the town "'and finish the business there. "'Caesar's reply was that in consequence of this information "'he was sending some of his troops to Cassena and Imola, "'for they would be useless to him, as he should now have theirs, which together with the escort he retained would be sufficient, since his only object was the complete pacification of the Duchy of Urbino. He added that this pacification would not be possible if his old friends continued to distrust him, and to discuss through intermediaries alone plans in which their own fortunes were interested as well as his. The messenger returned with this answer, and the confederates, though feeling it is true the justice of Caesar's remarks, "'none the less hesitated to comply with his demand. "'Vitolozzo Vitelli in particular showed a want of confidence in him, "'which nothing seemed able to subdue. "'But, pressed by Oliverotto, Guavina, and Orsino, "'he consented at last to await the Duke's coming, "'making concession rather because he could not bear to appear more timid than his companions, "'than because of any confidence he felt in the return of friendship that Vorgia was displaying. "'The Duke learned the news of this decision, so much desired, "'when he arrived at Fano on the 20th of December, 1502. "'At once he summoned eight of his most faithful friends, "'amongst whom were Dena, his nephew Michelotto, and Ugo di Cordona, "'and ordered them, as soon as they arrived at Sinigallia, "'and had seen Vitellozzo, Guavina, Oliverata, and Gorsino come out to meet them, "'on a pretext of doing them honour, "'to place themselves on the right and left hand of the four generals.' two beside each, so that at a given signal they might either stab or arrest them. Next he assigned to each of them his particular man, bidding them not quit his side until he had re-entered Senegalia and arrived at the quarters prepared for him. Then he sent orders to such of the soldiers as were in cantonments in the neighbourhood to assemble to the number of 8,000 on the banks of the Metaurus, a little river of Umbria, which runs into the Adriatic and has been made famous by the defeat of Hannibal. The duke arrived at the rendezvous given to his army on the 31st of December, and instantly sent out in front two hundred horse, and immediately behind them his infantry, following close in the midst of his men-at-arms, following the coast of the Adriatic, with the mountains on his right, and the sea on his left, which in part of the way left only space for the army to march ten abreast. After four hours' march, the duke at a turn of the path perceived Senegalia, nearly a mile distant from the sea. "'and a bowshot from the mountains. "'Between the army and the town ran a little river, "'whose banks he had to follow for some distance. "'At last he found a bridge opposite a suburb of the town, "'and here Caesar ordered his cavalry to stop. "'It was drawn up in two lines, "'one between the road and the river, "'the other on the side of the country, "'leaving the whole width of the road to the infantry, "'which latter defiled, crossed the bridge, "'and entering the town, "'drew themselves up in battle array in the great square.' On their side, Vitellozzo, Gravina, Orsino, and Oliverotto, to make room for the duke's army, had quartered their soldiers in little towns or villages in the neighbourhood of Senegalia. Oliverotto alone had kept nearly one thousand infantry and a hundred and fifty horse, who were in barracks in the suburb through which the duke entered. Caesar had made only a few steps towards the town when he perceived Vitellozzo at the gate, with the duke of Gravina and Orsino, "'who all came out to meet him, the last two quite gay and confident, "'but the first so gloomy and dejected that you would have thought he foresaw the fate that was in store for him, "'and doubtless he had not been without same presentiments. "'For when he left his army to come to Senegalia, he had bidden them farewell as though never to meet again, "'had commended the care of his family to the captains, and embraced his children with tears.' a weakness which appeared strange to all who knew him as a brave condottieri. The Duke marched up to them, holding out his hand, as a sign that all was over and forgotten, and did it with an air at once so loyal and so smiling, that Gravina and Orsino could no longer doubt the genuine return of his friendship. And it was only Vitellozza still appeared sad. At the same moment, exactly as they had been commanded, the Duke's accomplices took their posts on the right and left of those they were to watch, who were all there except Oliverotto, whom the Duke could not see, and began to seek with uneasy looks. But as he crossed the suburb he perceived him exercising his troops on the square. Caesar at once dispatched Michelotto and Denna, "'with a message that it was a rash thing to have his troops out, "'when they might easily start some quarrel with the duke's men, "'and bring about an affray. "'It would be much better to settle them in barracks, "'and then come to join his companions, who were with Caesar.' "'Oliverotto, drawn by the same fate as his friends, "'made no objection, ordered his soldiers indoors, "'and put his horse to the gallop to join the duke, "'escorted on either side by Dena and Michelotto. "'Caesar, on seeing him, called him, took him by the hand, and continued his march to the palace that had been prepared for him, his four victims following after. Arrived on the threshold, Caesar dismounted, and, signing to the leader of the men-at-arms to await his orders, he went in first, followed by Oliverotto, Gravina, Vitellozzo Vitelli, and Orsino, each accompanied by his two satellites. But scarcely had they gone upstairs and into the first room when the door was shut behind them, and Caesar turned round, saying, The hour has come. This was the signal agreed upon. Instantly the former confederates were seized, thrown down, and forced to surrender with a dagger at their throat. Then, while they were being carried to a dungeon, Caesar opened the window, went out on the balcony, and cried out to the leader of his men-at-arms, "'Go forward!' The man was in the secret. He rushed on with his band towards the barracks where Oliver Rutter's soldiers had just been consigned, and they, suddenly surprised and off their guard, were at once made prisoners.' Then the Duke's troops began to pillage the town, and he summoned Machiavelli. Caesar and the Florentine envoy were nearly two hours shut up together, and since Machiavelli himself recounts the history of this interview, we will give his own words. "'He summoned me,' says the Florentine ambassador, and in the calmest manner showed me his joy at the success of this enterprise, which he assured me he had spoken of to me the evening before.' i remember that he did but i did not at that time understand what he meant next he explained in terms of much feeling and lively affection for our city the different motives which had made him desire your alliance a desire to which he hopes you will respond he ended with charging me to lay three proposals before your lordships first that you rejoice with him in the destruction at a single blow of the mortal enemies of the king himself and you and the consequent disappearance of all seas of trouble and dissension likely to waste Italy. This service of his, together with his refusal to allow the prisoners to march against you, ought, he thinks, to excite your gratitude towards him. Secondly, he begs that you will at this juncture give him a striking proof of your friendliness, by urging your cavalry's advance towards Borgo, and there assembling some infantry also, in order that they may march with him should need arise on Castello or on Perugia. Lastly, he desires, and this is his third condition, that you arrest the Duke of Urbino if he should flee from Castello into your territories, when he learns that Vitalozzo is a prisoner. When I objected that to give him up would not beseem the dignity of the Republic, and that you would never consent, he approved of my words, and said that it would be enough for you to keep the Duke, and not give him his liberty without His Excellency's permission." I have promised to give you all this information, to which he awaits your reply." The same night eight masked men descended to the dungeon where the prisoners lay. They believed at that moment that the fatal hour had arrived for all. But this time the executioners had to do with Vitellozzo and Oliverotto alone. When these two captains heard that they were condemned, Oliverotto burst forth into reproaches against Vitellozzo. "'saying that it was all his fault that they had taken up arms against the Duke. "'Not a word Ritalozzo answered except a prayer that the Pope might grant him plenary indulgence for all his sins. "'Then the masked men took them away, leaving Orsino and Gravina to await a similar fate, "'and led away the two chosen out to die to a secluded spot outside the ramparts of the town, "'where they were strangled and buried at once in two trenches that had been dug beforehand.' The two others were kept alive until it should be known if the Pope had arrested Cardinal Orsino, Archbishop of Florence and Lord of Santa Croce, and when the answer was received in the affirmative from His Holiness, Gravina and Orsino, who had been transferred to a castle, were likewise strangled. The Duke, leaving instructions with Michelotto, set off for Sinigalia as soon as the first execution was over, assuring Machiavelli that he had never had any other thought than that of giving tranquillity to the Romagna and to Tuscany and also that he thought he had succeeded by taking and putting to death the men who had been the cause of all the trouble, also that any other revolt that might take place in the future would be nothing but sparks that a drop of water could extinguish. The Pope had barely learned that Caesar had his enemies in his power when, eager to play the same winning game himself, he announced to Cardinal Orsino, though it was then midnight, that his son had taken Senegalia, and gave him an invitation to come the next morning and talk over the good news. The Cardinal, delighted at this increase of favour, did not miss his appointment. So in the morning he started on horseback for the Vatican, but at a turn of the first street he met the Governor of Rome with a detachment of cavalry, who congratulated him on the happy chance that they were taking the same road, and accompanied him to the threshold of the Vatican. There the Cardinal dismounted and began to ascend the stairs. Scarcely, however, had he reached the first landing before his mules and carriages were seized and shut in the palace stables. When he entered the hall of the PowerPoint, he found that he and all his suite were surrounded by armed men, who led him into another apartment, called the Vicar's Hall, where he found the abbot Alviano, the proto-notary Orsino, Jacopo Santa Croce, and Rinaldo Orsino, who were all prisoners like himself. At the same time, the governor received orders to seize the castle of Monte Giardino, which belonged to the Orsini, and take away all the jewels, all the hangings, all the furniture, and all the silver that he might find. The governor carried out his orders conscientiously, and brought to the Vatican everything he seized down to the cardinal's account-book. On consulting the book, the Pope found out two things. First, that the sum of two thousand ducats was due to the cardinal, no debtor's name being mentioned, secondly that the cardinal had bought three months before for one thousand five hundred roman crowns a magnificent pearl which could not be found among the objects belonging to him on which alexander ordered that from that very moment until the negligence in the cardinal's account was repaired the men who were in the habit of bringing him food twice a day on behalf of his mother should not be admitted into the castle Saint angelo the same day the cardinal's mother sent the pope the two thousand ducats and the next day his mistress in man's attire "'came in person to bring the missing pearl. "'His holiness, however, was so struck with her beauty in this costume "'that, we are told, he let her keep the pearl for the same price she had paid for it. "'Then the Pope allowed the Cardinal to have his food brought as before, "'and he died of poison on the 22nd of February, "'that is, two days after his accounts had been set right. "'The same night the Prince of Squilacci set off to take possession, "'in the Pope's name, of the lands of the deceased.' End of section 24.